Hey everyone, welcome back. Before we get started in today's stories, I wanted to mention that these stories are very dark and disturbing, as the title suggests. There's mention of murder, stabbing, and suicide all throughout these stories. I also want to admit that if you don't believe some of these stories, I don't even blame you. You should always take every story with a grain of salt. At the end of the day, we don't actually know what's true and what isn't, unless of course proof is provided. All that being said, if you ever want to send your own story, you can send it in at southerncannibal.com. Okay, let's begin. And remember, to always, stay hungry. Before I start, I would like to preface that I'm very understanding of mental crises and the impact of a mental breakdown that can have on someone. Regardless though, however much pain someone is in, I just cannot see justifying putting someone else's life at risk. On September of 2019, my boyfriend C and I moved in together. At the time, we had been together for six and a half years as we had begun dating in middle school. So this was of course a dream come true. Of course, if you could overlook the cockroaches, constant stench of bad weed, loud music at all hours of the night, general lack of safety and hypodermic needles laying around the grounds, then I guess you could call it a paradise. Regardless to us, having a place to ourselves was heaven, minus the nice smells, but that's what candles are for, right? Anyway, while I decorated the place to make it a home and burn more candles than a Catholic church at a mass to forget the smell of rotting campaign left over from the previous owner, everything started to go downhill when new neighbors moved in both across the hall and directly above us. Right as we went into September of 2020 and my college classes had turned virtual along with my work, we came to know more about our across-the-hall neighbors' tumultuous relationship than we ever cared to know. After nine calls to the police day and night, they were finally evicted after an argument while strung out, which resulted in a stabbing. For me, this was the line. The line in mind that could not be crossed. Although I'd been calling the cops day in and day out because they'd been up all night fighting, I really thought management would step in before things got serious. After our neighbors across the hall had been evicted, we were left with only one more headache our neighbor who lived above us. He blared his music starting at 2 a.m. and ending at 6 a.m. He refused to listen to reason. Once C would go up to talk to him, asking kindly if he could turn his volume down, as he and I had to both work the next day, he would just laugh in his face and slam the door. This went on for a month, and after endless phone calls and emails to management that resulted in nothing, we felt defeated. One night, I had finally had enough, and I had went up myself. I banged on his door until he finally opened up, and he finally came to the door and told me to go away, that he'd turn it down when he felt like it. As he closes the door, the door across the hall opened up, door 308. A young mother opened the door and then shook her head. I know, she said. My kids are in here trying to sleep but this is all they hear. I smiled at her sympathetically, and I retreated back downstairs to my apartment, number 218. 
We moved out of that apartment in August of 2021. July of 2022. Andrew Teckel Sundberg is fatally shot by Minneapolis police after a six-hour standoff in the same apartment he lived in when we were there. The apartment littered with bullets was that of the mother who I spoke to that night. Apartment 308. I can only imagine it was her having enough of his music, just like I had that night only a year prior that set him off. I just can't stop thinking about this now that it's been released who the shooter was, and I'm only thankful that we got out when we did. For some context, I'm a guy, and this happened to me when I was 14. It was a Friday night the summer before I started my freshman year of high school. My mom was out of town with her friends for the weekend, and my dad was gone for a week on a work trip, so I had the house to myself that weekend. On that night, I had decided to invite over my friend Terrence. When Terrence arrived, he didn't really have an excited look on his face. Instead, he looked depressed, like as if he was going through something really tragic in his life. When he came and sat down next to me on the couch, he was telling me he's been having depression for a few months. And when I asked him why, he said that his parents were getting a divorce, and his dad was blaming the entire thing on him, even though he knew he did nothing wrong. His mom had told his dad to knock it off, then they both started arguing about him having to pay child support. Terrence said that his dad had been really vulgar, and verbally abusive to him and his mom ever since the day he left. Then when Terrence was done sharing his story to me, he had started crying really hard. That was when he said that he wanted to come over to my place to get away from all the drama. I told him I was always going to be there for him, and I gave him some comfort, and I told him he'll be okay. He asked if he could stay at my house for the night. I told him it was cool because of the drama he was going through. He appreciated it and he said he was really lucky to have me as a friend. Well, right around 11.45 that night, I was in my room putting some things away when I had heard a loud bang come from the living room. It was very loud, and it rang out all throughout the entire house. I went to go look, and what I saw next almost made me faint. There was Terrence lying on the floor with a bullet in his head and he was drenched in blood. I had then let out possibly the loudest scream that I've ever screamed in my life. Terrence had shot himself with my dad's handgun that he found in the drawer of the nightstand by the bathroom. I got down on my knees and I began crying very hard, and I was hyperventilating so much that I had a hard time catching my breath. I then started screaming. I grabbed Terrence's phone to call his mom on it. But before I dialed his mom's number, I saw that he sent his dad a text, which read, Dad, it's all your fault. You've really put me through so much shit. I'm about to do something to myself that I really should have done a long time ago. I just want you to know that I blame you for all of this. I called Terrence's mom on his phone while I was crying and hyperventilating, and I explained the whole situation to his mom. She said she would go get her soon-to-be ex-husband, and they'd be there ASAP. When his parents arrived, I explained everything to them. I even screamed at his dad and cursed at him, and I chewed his ass out for making his son do that to himself. 
I got down on my knees and I began crying even harder. His mom was crying as well, saying that she hates him for what he made their son do to himself. His dad was actually starting to feel guilty for this, but his mom and I didn't listen to him. After all the commotion, his mom called 911, and after they arrived, they took Terrence out in a body bag. The next day when my mom got home, I had to tell her everything that happened, and that was when she saw the blood stain on the carpet. Terrence was the best friend that I ever had in my life, and him killing himself eventually led to me having really bad depression. I'm 19 years old now, and to this day, I just can't stop thinking about him. That night will forever haunt my memory. Long before I was born, for some context, my dad and his family lived in Texas in a town called Temple. A lot of people haven't heard of it because whenever they think of Texas, they think of big cities like Dallas or Houston. My dad and his younger sister were both born in North Carolina, but my grandfather was an army doctor, so they moved around quite a bit. After North Carolina came Oklahoma, then Arizona, and then sometime in the late 1980s, my grandfather found a stable residence for the family in Texas. Fort Hood needed doctors, and my grandfather was ready for any challenge that came his way. My grandmother was adamant that she didn't want to live on another army base, so she negotiated with him that they bought a ranch-style house with a clearing. Unfortunately, his commute from Temple to Fort Hood was very tiring, and as will most army families, he spent less time at home. Now, the story isn't so much about my father, but about his sister. For the sake of privacy, I'll call her Tracy. I actually grew up hearing this story. It was a cautionary tale for me in terms of stranger danger. As I got older, my aunt was able to tell me more details. It's really taken her a long time to be comfortable with what happened. It was 1991, and my dad was a senior in high school while my Aunt Tracy was a sophomore. Unlike my father, she was a lot less reserved and more outgoing, so she made a lot of friends. Now, I should also note that Tracy was also very naive. She trusted a lot of people that she shouldn't have, and she was way too nice to strangers who could have easily taken advantage of her. Not only that, but as soon as she got her license, she took her car out to go see her friends. She rarely spent time at home, especially on the weekends. My dad claims it's because my grandfather barely gave Tracy his attention, but I don't feel like going into detail about all that. Most of Tracy's friends actually didn't live in Temple, so she would drive over to their neighborhoods in Belton, the next town over. My aunt, who was 16 at the time, considered herself to be very mature and independent. Here's where I need to add more context. Now, I've seen pictures of my aunt when she was younger. She was a late bloomer, and to put it bluntly, well, when she was 16, she could have passed as a 12-year-old. It was either June or July, and Tracy had all this free time now that school was out for the summer. She drove to her best friend's house in Belton, who I'll call Mona. Mona's parents had gone to do something out of town, and Mona had the house all to herself. 
Tracy and some of her friends went to Mona's house to party. I don't exactly remember all of the details, but for some reason, my aunt just couldn't spend the night. It wasn't super late when she left, but the sun was starting to go down and she wanted to get back to Temple. So she says her goodbyes and starts driving. Not even a few minutes after she left, Tracy's car starts to stall. She pulls over to the side and puts on her hazards. Luckily for her, she hadn't broken down in a bad neighborhood. In fact, she was still close to Mona's residence, and Mona lived in a really nice house. Instead of waiting for a car to pass, she decides to walk back to Mona's and use the phone. Just writing this gives me anxiety. I can only imagine just how nervous my aunt must have been, walking alone in a neighborhood she wasn't too familiar with, just as the sun was going down. She walks for a moment, knowing that all she has to do is reach the end of the street, turn, and then Mona's house would come into view on a hilltop. My aunt was about to make it to the end of the street, when she then passes by a really nice mansion. It was probably one of the nicest houses she had ever seen while living in Texas. There were two guys in the driveway, and one of them drinking a beer. They didn't catcall my aunt, but the taller of the two then shouted, Hey, young lady, where are you going? Tracy looks over, and the tall guy is actually walking towards her. You alright? She remembers him asking. I don't know why a nice girl like you would be out by yourself. As I've said before, my aunt was way nicer to strangers than she ever should have been. She wanted to be polite, so she continued the conversation. Oh, I'm just here visiting a friend. Not from around here, are you? The guy asked. Nearby, my aunt quickly said, I'm on the way to my friend's house. How come? The guy asked. There was really no need for this grown man to be interrogating my aunt, who literally looked like a child. The guy wasn't being rude, but something about his presence was really invasive, as Tracy put it. The other guy in the driveway wasn't really interested in their conversation, and my aunt was hoping that he'd just stay there. The guy who was talking to her was huge, probably six feet tall, and my aunt was only about 5'1". He had tan skin, black hair, late 20s or early 30s. At first, my aunt thought that he was pretty good looking. Then he started staring at her like he was undressing her with his eyes. That's the only way Tracy could describe it. Well, I'm running behind, she told him. She's expecting me now. Well, why don't I give you a ride? The man told her. My truck is literally right over there. My aunt spotted the blue pickup truck and shook her head. No, thank you. No, no, really. I don't mind. I'm sure lots of guys offer you a ride. Can't blame them. You're pretty. As naive as my aunt was, alarm bells were now ringing. She kept walking, assuring him that she would be okay with walking. She managed to put herself about 10 feet from him, feeling confident that she could run if this guy tried to grab her. Tracy kept insisting that she was fine. That's how persistent this dude was. She thought about running back to her car, but that would mean going past the guy. Given that this was a time before cell phones, which we now use and operate, 
my aunt couldn't just threaten him with a 911 call. By some miracle, she then saw an elderly woman come out of a house that was a few doors down. She was taking her dog out to pee. Thinking fast, my aunt told the man, Oh, that's my grandma. I gotta go. And without warning, she then took off towards the woman, who was startled as my aunt entered her front yard. My aunt quickly and quietly informed the woman that she needed to use the phone, that her car had broken down, and there was a weird creepy guy trying to pick her up. The elderly woman looked past my aunt and the man, and then ushered her inside. As she entered the woman's residence, Tracy made the mistake of looking back towards the mansion. The man was still standing in the exact spot. His posture was tense, and my aunt said that despite the distance, she could see how wide and white his eyes were. She assumed that he was angry or frustrated. After what felt like an eternity, my aunt said that he turned around and walked back towards the other guy. Tracy called a tow truck, and the elderly woman told her to wait inside just in case the creepy guy was still out there. Eventually, the truck came, and my aunt thanked the elderly woman for her hospitality. She got a ride back home, relieved that she was back in solace. My grandparents and dad were obviously aware of the car situation, but my aunt didn't tell them about the creep, fearing that my grandmother wouldn't let her out of her sight. Now, the real ending to my aunt's story might as well be something right out of a horror movie. She eventually told my dad about the creep, but he didn't pry for the details. Years later, though, when Aunt Tracy got married back in North Carolina, she again told the story, this time to her friends and husband. Someone rhetorically asked, Wow, I wonder whatever happened to that weirdo. As my uncle would later confirm, the color in my aunt's face drained as she told their wedding guests. Oh, he's dead. They asked her how she could possibly know that when the creep never even told her his name. After composing herself, my aunt then said, Well, do you guys remember that guy that drove his truck into Luby's and started shooting? It was him. That was the creep who offered me a ride. As it turns out, my aunt had encountered George Hennard, a 35-year-old Marine who was living off his family's wealth in Belton. A few months after trying to lure my aunt into his vehicle, on October 16th, Hennard plowed his blue pickup truck into Luby's Cafeteria, a popular restaurant in the nearby town of Killeen. He opened fire and killed well over 20 people before taking his own life. When my aunt was watching the news report, his picture flashed up on the screen and it felt like her chest was about to explode. For a very long time, she replayed the scenario over and over in her head. She actually had nightmares where he'd gotten her into the truck and assaulted her. My aunt's doing all right now, but I understand why it took her a long time for her to get over it. She once told me that she often wondered if some of the victims saw just how wide and white his eyes were before he shot them. She'll never forget that stare. The story was when I was much more young and brave, and kinda did stupid stuff without thinking. It's a wild ride, and it's all true. I used to work at a pizza shop down the street from 2pm until they closed. 
I usually didn't get off until 11 or so at night. I had a car, but it was close enough to walk, so I did that most days to save gas. This particular night, I was doing my usual thing, jamming to one of my playlists, tired but really happy to have a good job, and just generally happy with the way my life was going. Up ahead, about a block from my place, I see an attractive-looking guy in dark clothing walking, but not really with a purpose. He was taller than me, maybe about 5'10 to 6 foot or so, and he had shaggy brown hair. The closer I got to him, the more I could tell he was really good-looking. Like, even in the dark of night, I was starting to get really excited. His features kind of escaped me now, but I do remember his hair and his thick eyebrows. I took out an earbud, and because I'm from a dangerous city and never really cared about stranger danger, I decided to talk to him, maybe even flirt a little bit. Hey, how's your night going? It's good. I'm just looking to get drunk. Oh, that I can help with. I've got a mini bar at my place. I live just down the street. That was not verbatim how the conversation went. During the walk back to my place, I got no red flags from this guy. He seemed totally normal, and I was honestly thinking, wow, just sure luck I meet this super hunky guy, and he seems really cool and fun. I was beside myself, really. So we get to my apartment on the second floor. I jump into host mode, and I offer him to have a seat and to make himself comfortable. The apartment was about 640 square feet, so it's very small. Except for the bathroom, you can see the rest of the apartment from any area. I head into the kitchen, and while I'm pouring drinks, I glance back over at him. It was then that I noticed the first red flag. As I was asking him questions, he's more delayed with his answers, especially more so than he was on the walk there. It was just odd to me. I go back over to the couch, pass him his drink, and sit down next to him. So, what do you do for work? I asked. Oh, I'm not here for sex. He put his drink down on the table. Um, what do you mean? I'm not after sex either. He stands up. What you got? He asks me. His nice guy personality and friendly face are gone now. I'm having a hard time processing what he means by this. Did you hear me? I said, what do you got? The second I stand up, he pushes me back. I fly across the room, hitting the floor, but not hard enough to pass out or anything. I get right back up, but he's already grabbed my laptop and my work bag. As I start towards him, he cuts around me and he makes his way towards the front door. I'm now right behind him when he makes it outside. I manage to grab a hold of him and we tussle again in front of the door. Now I shout out, calling on help from the neighbors. It's really late at night at this point, so no one comes. I'm now shouting at this point. The thing is, he has my laptop, and it's not just any laptop. I hate to admit it, but my entire life was on that laptop at the time. Important photos that I didn't have backed up, thousands of dollars of music programs, video game programming stuff for a development team I helped, and really expensive software. 
It was in my mind, totally irreplaceable. I give chase down the stairs across the dog walk park, and as I start to gain on him, we tussle again, and the only thing I can focus on is my laptop. I knew that I had to at any cost get my laptop back. That was absolutely all I cared about. Somehow I finally get a grip on my laptop. I tug at it again, and I guess he decides I'm not worth all of this struggle. He gets up, and he starts to take off again. I now realize that he still has my work bag. It has my cell phone and wallet in it, with my licensed debit cards and AAA card in it. I take off towards him yet again, and this time, he shouts back at me. I dare you. If you follow me, I'll stab you again. This makes me stop dead in my tracks, and he gets away. Underneath a street lamp along the sidewalk, I immediately inspect myself. Was I stabbed? No way. There's no way. Then I see blood running down my leg. I see blood on my arm. Two places where he got me good. I'm scared, but the blood makes him look worse than it is. I decide that's enough. I got my laptop, and that's all I really wanted anyway. I hobble back home, and I get inside and lock my door. I had called the cops using my neighbor friend's phone the next day, and I filed a police report explaining the situation, also showing the stab wounds and declining medical services. I can't afford that, and I was honestly fine all things considered. So all that guy got was a crappy cell phone and a wallet, with like 30 to $40 in it. The com called my friend back several days later, and they said they weren't able to find the guy, but that they would keep me posted. This all happened years ago, and I don't know where the robber is now, but I now have every electronic thing of importance backed up on multiple drives to this day. I still cannot believe that I got stabbed and didn't know it. I'm very glad nothing worse happened. Hey everyone, I hope you all enjoyed these stories. If you ever want to submit your own, you can do so at southerncannibal.com. Have a good night everyone. And remember, to always...